0: Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong, and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Are you in a hurry? Do you feel like you should be asking for a promotion and a pay rise? I have definitely been that person, but I'm not sure it was always the best thing to do. So, in this episode, I talk to the Secretary of New South Wales Health, Susan Pearce. Susan is someone who really understands the health system. She spent six years as Deputy Secretary, having previously been Chief Nursing Officer and Deputy Secretary for Patient Experience. In this episode, we discuss the benefits of going slowly and explore how having a deep technical understanding is a slow but steady route to a long-term successful career as a leader. Susan, thank you for joining uh, the Future Women Leadership Series. I'm going to surprise our listeners by starting in broken Hill. Tell us uh, a little bit about Broken Hill. Where was the last time you were there? Uh, I went to Broken Hill three times last
1: year, actually. So I haven't been there this calendar year, but last year I was lucky. So I was so grateful to get out there. Um, I've got very deep connections to Broken Hill.
0: So that do you, do you still see that as home and um, that's where you grew up? No, I, I grew up in Bathurst. Um,
1: and then I went to Broken Hill when I finished nursing and I was there for 10 years. Um, and I I guess it's so deeply ingrained in me because my first recollection of arriving there as a, a student nurse um, in about 1989, I think, was getting off the Indian Pacific and and seeing, you know, the sky and the... I guess I just loved everything about it from the minute I set foot in the place. So, yeah. And my son was born there. Um, so he's about to turn 31. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just it was just a very special part of my life.
0: Yeah, I um, grew up in a country town in South Australia. So we as a family, you know, all piled in the car and went driving. I don't know where we were <laughs> actually ultimately headed. But we did go through Broken Hill and spent... Um, uh, time at Pro Heart's gallery, you know, which was just as a child, was just, you know, mind blowing seeing what he did out in the middle of Australia. Um, what drew you to nursing? Uh, look, I've been asked this question many times, and it's,
1: I, I don't really think I've ever been able to articulate a proper answer to it. I, I, I just never really conceived of doing anything else. Um, so when I was in high school, I had an aunt who was a heavy influence in my life in a positive way Uh, and and she had done some nursing at some point in her life and I guess it just, I had that desire to help people and I guess to find purpose and for me it was just, it was never an option. So from when I was in high school, I, yeah, that, that was, I made my mind up that's what I was doing and that's what I did.
0: The thing that I want to explore with you today is the pace of someone's career and their rise to leadership roles. Were you ever in a hurry?
1: Uh, no, not, not in a hurry, I don't think. Um, I've tried to th- analyse myself about sort of, you know, how, okay, probably women do that a lot, I, I guess, but, you know, how is it that I've ended up in this, in this role, which is something obviously I value greatly after, you know, 35 years now since I started nursing. And so I've been in health a very long time. Um, but no, I don't think I could say I'm in a, I was in a hurry. I don't think I could also say I was particularly ambitious, but I think what I am is I'm quite competitive. No good at sport, mind you, but um, I, I'm, you know, I'm quite good. I'm quite competitive. And so I, I always wanted to do to do things, I guess, in that, in that frame of reference is probably the best way I can describe myself.
0: And, and I, I just want to thank you for um, making that point because as I was listening to you, there is no way you have the career uh, that you've had and accidentally fallen upwards the whole time, right? And I think a lot of women can n- n- probably subconsciously uh, tell the story that it was all a bit accidental. And there's a component of that for sure. I, I, totally, I totally acknowledge that. But it, it can never be that accidental to continue to take on bigger and more pressurized roles. But nevertheless, I'm very intrigued by your career because it plays into a bit of a theme that is developing through the guests I've had in recent times around the value of getting experience Um, and I guess it's against the backdrop of a world where there's been a skills shortage. So young women are taking jobs quite quickly or demanding to take, you know, the next step quite quickly. So talk to me about your time as Deputy Secretary. I mean, you took, you were in that job for six years. Was that a long period of time for you? Or was that job just a privilege and a tough enough job as it was? Well, I think your question sort of presupposes
1: that I was then aiming for the job that I'm now in. And I'd have to say, I'm not saying I never conceived it was a possibility, but I also never really used to think about it a lot. I used to talk to my old boss, the former Secretary of Health, about this because we obviously had these conversations. And so it wasn't necessarily something that was outside of my you know thought process, but I was in the job I was in. And I think it went it went fast and slow in a way. Of course, you know, we were hit with the pandemic uh, after I'd been in the role for, I'm trying to remember now, but it was about five, I'd already been in the job for about five years, I think, when the pandemic, maybe four and a half, yeah, four and a half probably, when the pandemic hit. And so it was because of that job that I ended up performing the role that I did during the pandemic. So there were periods of, of time in that job where I just thought, I just can't keep doing this it's one of those roles where when you're responsible for system performance and also then an operational role, you're in the background. And it wasn't that I wanted to necessarily be in the foreground, but you get pretty tired of dealing with really difficult issues and really not getting much nourishment in terms of Positive things that I probably get to do now, and I've done in former jobs, so you know that was the hardest part of it for me. It wasn't you know I didn't need to be the front person, but i I also got you know during periods in that role with great some great achievements um, that I'm really proud of, but also periods where I just thought i just I just can't can't keep going with this and and as a health professional, I think one thing I recognize in myself is that Health professionals generally, I think, often don't realise that giving and caring for people is innate in us, but you also get a return on that investment quite quickly when you're dealing directly with a patient family, people that are right in front of you. And the further away from the bedside you go, the less of that you get, and you're sort of looking for it somewhere else. And I think, you know, that for me, because I'm an emotional type of a person and I like to, you know, to engage with people and and yeah. So that, you know, that was hard. But having said that, there was some pretty big achievements in that job and I was happy
0: enough doing it. I want to come back to your role as a deputy, but I can't let your point that you just made pass about being a health professional and putting in an investment in someone and into someone and something and getting a return on that investment. Is that something you have chased, and it really resonates with me because I think journalism is a bit like that as well. You invest in a story and the people you tell stories about, and you genuinely feel that there is value in that when you see a story published or you see an outcome. At what point did you understand that about yourself? Uh, I'd have to say probably
1: quite late in the piece and probably you know, more so when I was the Deputy Secretary because prior to that, I was the Chief Nursing Midwifery Officer for New South Wales. And so in that role, I had a lot of opportunity to do more positive and sort of proactive things around our workforce in the state and, you know, looking at workforce maldistribution and the the sort of problems that have been as part of this health system and in many health systems for a long time. And so I I did get a little... You know more of that in that role. Coming into the Dept. Sec. role, you were really hardcore, dealing with really hard and difficult issues. And it's probably during that period, and because what I was in that role for such a long time compared to my predecessors, I think I sort of did that role for about double the length of time that anybody else had ever done it, because it's it, it's a twenty four seven job. Not to say this one isn't, but just in a different way. And so I think it was probably during that time, to be honest.
0: So fairly late. <laughs> So what advice do you have anyone that is taking on that deputy role when that deputy role can be for a team of five, it can be a team of 50,000? It's a very specific responsibility being a deputy. What, do, what advice do you have and what do you think you are good at in that role?
1: Well, you know, the New South Wales Health System has 175,000 headcount staff, so it's a very large organisation. What did I say, Um,
0: 50,000? And you're like, 50,000? Three times. (laughs) I
1: just thought I'd just just
0: make mention of that,
1: um, (laughs) because the scale and the gravity of it isn't lost on me, and it's certainly not lost on my colleagues. Um, And so I think in a role, any of those leadership roles in the health system, whether you're a deputy secretary or a chief executive of one of our local health districts, you've got to appreciate that, you know, you've got thousands and thousands of staff and you are very reliant on the layers of leadership and management underneath you and you cannot pretend that you run the health system. And in my case, and I say this quite openly, I say it at every opportunity I get, I don't run New South Wales Health from my office in St Leonard's. And if I start pretending that I do, then you know, you've got a real problem there. So you've got to appreciate that you've got to rely on other people. And I think the most most successful thing for me during that time was that I worked really hard on building relationships with people across the system. I mean, I've been in the New South Wales health system for a long time. And so I know a lot of people, but I work very hard on building relationships so that I'm not using positional authority to get things done I'm actually using those relationships to get things done and hoping that people, and I think this is largely true um, without being self-serving, that people have generally, you know, been very responsive to my requests and particularly during the pandemic. I mean, I was asking people to do really crazy stuff and very short notice in response to what we were facing and I don't think I ever had one person say to me, no, not doing it, or even put up a fight. (laughs) Uh, So, and I I credit those relationships with the ability to do that. Um, I think I was a very good deputy to my predecessor. I was very loyal. Um, I did everything I could. I I worked for um, two female secretaries um, in that role. And, you know, I, I... Was very grateful to have had the opportunity to work with both of them, but I also made sure that I, you know, I really went out of my way to make sure they were covered on everything. So, you know, it it was a privilege in a lot of ways. And I think I've demonstrated, certainly in my appointment to this role, that, you know, I've done the hard yards and no one could suggest otherwise. And in health, and I'm sure in other industries, you know, there is a hierarchy there and there is a view that, you know, having subject matter expertise and technical expertise is important. I don't think it's the whole thing by any stretch, but there is value in it. There's value in me being able to say I worked in Broken Hill for 10 years uh, when I'm out in the country visiting hospitals, because there's a, a genuine view out in rural New South Wales that people like me have never set foot over the Blue Mountains. And so it's, you know, it's it's very useful to say, actually, I grew up in the country and I, I worked in Broken Hill for a decade.
0: When you think about the qualities of a good deputy, Loyalty is obviously at the top of that.
1: What else? Well, I think you have to. So it's finding that balance of, and I, th- I think I could always speak my mind. I I didn't feel hampered in in that way. And but you've got to accept that you know you're not you're not the boss. You're obviously part of the executive team. It's not all about you. Um, it's not all about the secretary either, frankly. But you know, I think it's it's about. It's not a about knowing your place, but you've got to function in that role and be satisfied that your contribution is making a difference. And I think that I was able to do that. as I said I didn't quest for the secretary role because I was acutely aware that you A have to be in the right, you know, in the right place at the right time. You obviously have to have the capability to do it. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But The government of the day might go, "Yep, look, that's great. You've been doing that job for, you know, you've been in health for 35 years, but we want somebody else and you have to accept that that's a real possibility. So there's no point pinning your hopes on something that may never come to fruition, I guess. I'm a pragmatist.
0: At what point did you go from realising that the job of deputy all consuming during a pandemic period and incredibly rewarding work could be parlayed into the top job? At what point did you kind of go, actually, I reckon I can do that? If I'm brutally honest with you,
1: during the course of my career, I have pretty much always had this somewhere. I don't know where where I got this from, but I've always had a degree of confidence that I could do the next thing. And, you know, I have been offered opportunities over the years and I've been, you know, brave enough to take them. When I left Broken Hill in, in 2001, my son was eight you know, unfortunately, my first marriage had, had broken up and I took a decision to leave. And, you know, that was probably the hardest decision that I ever made. And I remember somebody out there saying to me, well, you know, what if you get to Sydney and you don't like it? And I said, well, I've made the decision and I guess if that's what happens, then I, I'll have to live with that. And so I've all, I guess I've always had that attitude. Um, I was very fortunate to have been nurtured by a lot of really good great women. And, you know, my my predecessor, Elizabeth, you know, talked quite openly with me about my potential to take on this role. And so it had been put to me, my former boss when I was a chief nurse, you know, much to my great surprise, had said to me, look, you know, you 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 are my succession plan. And so I, I wasn't sort of thinking about myself in that way at that time. and And I think I've been really lucky to have had people who've propelled me along in addition to my own Degree of confidence and self worth.
0: You don't know where that self worth comes from.
1: No, brought up
0: in the country. Brothers,
1: no brothers. No, no, no brothers. Two sisters. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, I think as a kid, I, I, you t- sort of took a role in my family unit where I was the um, Christopher Pine of my family. I'm the fixer. Well. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was not sure <laughs> what you were, where the Christopher Plied light came in with. Thanks for clarifying. Um, and so I, you know, from a very young age for various reasons, um, that, you know, I can talk to you about another time. I, I got very used to solving problems and I've I've done that my whole life. And so I I think I just was used to just move you know, solving moving on and I and I've I've been well prepared for the the jobs that I've ended up in because of that
0: it's something I ask because I I, I talk about it all the time with Jamila Rizvi. I think we've done an entire podcast. My colleague is Jamila and for those that haven't heard me talk about it before, but um, we've done a whole podcast on confidence and self-belief because it is still the thing that I would talk about every day as the founder of Future Women. And it confounds me all the time because I, I see such a lack of confidence from senior women to the women in the with the double degree, raising three kids, but hasn't worked for five years thinking I'll never get a job. I mean, do you see it as well, given you've probably got, I think, I know, a majority female workforce?
1: Definitely. And I think, you know, I get a lot of people come and talk to me because I'm pretty approachable and affable and generally pretty positive positive. and optimistic type, which is useful given the job I've got. But, you know, I, I talk to particularly women about, you know, stop thinking you've got to tick every box to get to the next job. There are, you know, I mentioned earlier about technical expertise, but, and that, and people tend to pin everything they've got on, you know, well, I'm a subject matter expert, therefore I'm going to get, this is going to lead to promotion. And and my advice to them is, look, the further up the hierarchy you go, the less opportunities there are because it gets narrower. And you've got to accept the fact that you may or may not succeed and it may have nothing to do with you or your capability. It's just that there's somebody else who's going to, you know, beat you on the day in an interview process. But to think more laterally about what transferable skills you've got and how you can navigate your way through into different roles and to, and to and to back yourself and give yourself a go at it, you wouldn't be being asked if people didn't think you had the capability. You wouldn't be in an interview if you didn't have the ability. But what what makes a difference in I think when you get to an interview panel at a very at senior levels in our organisation is that it's really not the technical expertise that sets people apart. It's the behaviours and the, you know, the capability to be able to do the job for the softer reasons rather than the hard technical skill.
0: There's interesting advice given that, you know, when I look at your CV, it looks like someone who has done a slow and steady, gone on, done the job well, got the qualifications, done them well proven probably more than proven yourself in every job before taking on the next role. How much do you attribute your rise to the top of your profession to actually getting the technical expertise and how much to developing those soft transferable skills that are undoubtedly needed, stakeholder management, you know when to when to offer advice and when not to offer advice? How, how much do you credit? those two sets of skills to your success? Um, Look, I I think, to be honest, it's probably
1: 50-50. You need enough requisite skill to be able to, you know, I mean, I've I've followed an unusual path in some respects because I've, you know, went out of nursing into the nurses' union. You know, I was there for eight and a half years. I caused quite a bit of havoc for people who now work with me um, during those years and enjoyed myself doing it. And and the thing about it was, though, was that because it was never a personal or a horrible, you know, behaviour, it was really about dealing with issues, not dealing, you know, attacking people, I was able to come back into the health system, uh, into a workforce role. I did finish law while I was a deputy secretary, which, you know, and I reflect on that now, is just ridiculous, Um And I cannot, I knew when I was doing it that I would look back on that time and think, I don't know how I ever got through this. I finished my last law exams during the flu season of 2017 when I was in the deputy role and it was hell. And I don't think I slept a full night for three months during that period while we were contending with that flu season. So, you know, but as I said earlier, the relationships I formed and because of my nature, you know, I'm I'm pretty good at having really difficult conversations with people and not leaving them feeling bad. And I and I think those skills and my ability to work with I've obviously worked with, you know, most senior politicians in this state during the pandemic and outside of that. But I can equally go as I did earlier this week into a small rural hospital and talk to the staff in there. And I I think having the capability to be able to do that has has stood me in good stead. And I'm very much Uh, myself in all circumstances and people can see that and they respond well to it.
0: You've got this skill to communicate, empathise and negotiate with at every level. When do you say you're competitive then? I mean, I guess that means you go and do a stupid law degree, right? That's the competitive (laughs) bit. Like, when do you say competitive? What does that look like? Oh, I don't know. I I think I just want whatever I'm doing.
1: It's not as much about me as an individual, I suppose. It's more that because I often joke with people, I say, look, I take my work really seriously. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm very serious about the work that I do, but I'm not particularly serious about myself. It's more probably that I want whatever I'm doing, I want it to be as good as it can be. Um, And I was trying, I was trying to explain myself to someone recently. You know, we were talking about something. I said, "Look, I'm a Virgo. I've got law, and I worked in ICU."
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you're what I would say in the FW terms. I've got a team of people like you. I'm proud to say. Is you're a perfectionist. You just want everything you do to be really good. It's not that you're Competing with a person for a bigger house or car or a better or a better office no no yeah
1: so it's it's really I have that sense of wanting to achieve, but in whatever i'm doing and, and it's also then extends to the team that I'm working with so you know I am never that person that stands up and takes all the glory for something that has been the result of other people's hard work people in my and this is something that's really important to me as well the people that work with and for me mostly say that they feel supported and protected by me and that I they know that I would throw myself in front of a bus for them if I had to and I and I have um at times and but yeah so it, it really is about trying to just you know get it right and and sometimes that means getting right down into the detail of whatever so you know the vaccine rollout is a you know, the best example of anything I've ever done I can give you. I mean, I was responsible for the vaccine rollout across New South Wales and, you know, it was without question the most difficult professional experience of my life. We had, you know, plenty of vaccine that the community didn't want in the context of, you know, low rates of the disease. None of the vaccine that people did want, um, And, you know, and then when that came flooding through, we needed to somehow have managed to be prepared for that. And we were. And, you know, it it resulted in a very good outcome, but it it was tough.
0: Key lessons from that period. What did you take away from that period?
1: Um, I think a really important lesson for me in terms of communicating with others is that no one is capable of living through a period like that. And pretending that it was all a breeze and it was okay, it wasn't okay. I found that even like cycling, and I think I've told you this story before. You know, screaming "Helen, ready! I am woman!" at the top of my lungs on my bike. My husband thinking like this is it? She's going to have to be <laughs> medically attended to. Um, like just I don't know. I I, I somehow found it within myself to get through it, but I have to say there were days when I turned up at the office and thought, I don't think I can get out of the car. And I think it's good for other people to hear that from someone like me because on face value, yes, you'd look at my CV and think, oh, wow, you know, all of the things that have come along during my working life, I look like I'm on a pretty even keel most of the time, but, you know, it, it's, it's important for people to understand that. So um, I also learned that, you know, we're capable of doing anything um, and I've said to some of the people and some people who are a lot younger than me and are at a very different stage of their career that, you know, to be honest, there's it's unlikely that you'll ever do anything this hard again. So, you know, when you're feeling stressed and worried, try to balance it with what we've been through
0: because, you know, there are some positives from that. Just, um, and I don't want to send you back into this too far, but just so that people do grasp what, people like you did during that period of time. Just tell us what, you know, the days and months look like in terms of your workload. Yeah, look, it, it actually, um, it, it does give me the goosebumps
1: when I, you know, sort of think back to the start because I, th- and, and and we're just farewelling someone this morning who was a integral part of our team who's now going off happily into retirement. Um, and, you know, you think back to the start and I was out at Homebush, um, Premier Berejiklian was, you know, very insistent that all of the services be out there together. And she was right about that. It proved to be, you know, very effective. But, you know, dealing with the start of hotel quarantine and myself and Karen Webb, who's now the police commissioner, you know, the weekend that that started, she was in a different role then. I'm out there and we're sort of cobbling together what that would look like because it was done with very, if you remember, you know, it's very short notice. And we had to stand up and the police were obviously standing up at hotels. We had to you know, staff them and think about how we're going to support them. You walk past a hotel now in the city and you think, did that even happen? Was that real? You know, um, I can remember exactly where I was standing when I got the phone call to say we'd had our first transmission event in a, in a hotel um, and working out how that had occurred and people going into hotels and doing smoke testing so we could see where the airflow was going and and trying to work out how these things had occurred having to meet planes and have staff there to to screen people coming off planes, trains, the border closure. You know, our team ran the exemptions unit. So we were processing and, you know, and had, had very difficult, you know, people who are trying to get to loved ones who are dying, who are ill, you know, trying to manage through that in a safe way. The setting up of ICUs to make sure that, you know, we had enough capacity to be able to deal with whatever came our way and we we certainly... well set up, but you know, well, you've got all of these extra ventilators, have you got enough oxygen to support them all? So like the level of detail. So, you know, it was day in, day out. I was a member of the Cabinet Policy Committee, you know, that met every day for weeks and months on end. It was intense. And there's definitely a part of, you know, your brain. I mean, I cried twice the weekend that Omicron because we, we just sort of always felt like we got through one thing and then whack. Uh, you know, it, it just kept coming back and and whacking us. Um, and so you know, thinking to myself, I just I can't do it. Again. I can't, I can't I can't keep going with this. Um, so you know we we feel we have had a good look at what we did. Nothing nothing about it was perfect, but we did our best with what was in front of us at the time. Um I firmly believe that. And yes, you might make different decisions with the benefit of hindsight, but at the time, um, and people have got very short memories about what was being asked for at a community level and and so on. So I think you know it's it's something that will affect us that we're involved in it in that way, I think genuinely for the rest of our lives. Like, we will never forget, every time somebody mentions my role, you know, as a state health emergency operations centre controller, it actually, I have a visceral reaction to that. We
0: lost another COVID premier in Dan Andrews. Um, Stephen Marshall's gone. Gladys chicklin is gone. Anastasia Palaszczuk goes to an election next year. It's quite possible she won't get through the next election cycle in Queensland. How is it you're still here? <laughs> How, what has kept you? What has kept you still in this chair? I mean, you know, it's an extraordinary role you hold, and you know, uh, just to make one final point um, on that, I think most people living in New South Wales, most fair-minded people living in New South Wales, are pretty grateful for the leadership in New South Wales because it was quite a different experience from elsewhere.
1: Mm um look the thing about the health system is once it's in you I mean I've I've had other you know dabbles at looking at other things over the years you know jobs outside of health and and so on I need to be able to see that sense of purpose and for me the thing about health and obviously I'm you know toward you know coming towards the end of my career now I've I'm 54 so you know the the years are ticking by and
0: but the health system will prevail no matter what but but my question is how do you keep getting out of bed and and working at this level well because I love it I love the
1: fact that we make a difference and as I say to particularly you know groups of clinicians we have a very 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 unique privilege in the lives of the community and if you think about it, if I you know, go back to my own roots as a, as a nurse. I'm still registered to practice as a nurse, but I did my vaccine certificate during the vaccine rollout just in case I needed to be out there vaccinating myself. But, um, but uh, you know, the, the thing is that we we are with people during the worst and most difficult times of their lives. And there are not many other professions that can say that on a 24-7 basis, they are the ones that were there when X happened to someone. And I think... You have to see that as a privilege and I love the people that I work with. I love the health professionals that are out there and they've done it tough, you know, over these years and I've been out, um, you know, going out and visiting some hospitals recently and they're just amazing people. It's tough but they're just like, you know what, we're getting on with it or, or this is what we're doing to try and deal with this problem and, you know, we're trying to find ways to help and so I just, I, I just have always loved... Health environment, and that's why I'm still here.
0: What are your leadership strengths? What do you see as your leadership strengths? I'm a very much what you see is what you get type.
1: You know, I don't say one thing and do another. I'm pretty direct, but I think, you know, the feedback I get is that I'm authentic and I'm human. And, you know, I think I also shared with you, Helen, that the tragic death of our paramedic in the middle of April this year. Unfortunately, my husband had, you know, been diagnosed with cancer a couple of weeks before that, so I was already in a bit of a state because I had myself convinced that, you know, things were going to be worse than they ended up being. Unfortunately, he's actually doing really well. But the day that Stephen was killed, I went to a press conference with the police and with our ambulance chief executive, and I cried um, because, like <laughs> who wouldn't? And what was really interesting to me about that was, other than fact, I was mortified to be all over the, you know, the night news, you know, blubbering away. But I did manage to pull myself together. But the response that I got to that was really incredible. And what it was, was people saying to me, thank you for being human and thank you for showing us that it's okay to be upset about this. And that, it sort of surprised me because I thought, do people really think? that because you're, you know, the most senior health bureaucrat in the state that you just have no emotion and that you could approach something like that and not care about it. And I got beautiful messages from people. And so for me, being real and being human and connecting with people, I think is my strongest leadership
0: skill. And it was a leading question because I was going to ask you, you know, whether empathy is one of those components of your leadership that you know, has propelled you. Um it's probably also been a, and I, I won't put words in your mouth, but it's probably also been a burden to feel the empathy all the time. You probably go home some nights and go, I wish, I wish I could just turn it off sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, others have described it, you know, it is sort of my greatest strength and my biggest weakness. And I think that's fair. You know, it's, um, I do feel things pretty deeply. I've learned over the years, though, to not, you know, allow it to burden me so much that you just become paralyzed by it because I think that you, you know, I'm I'm pretty decisive and I I need to be able to make decisions and good decisions and decisions based on, you know, thinking through whatever the problem is and, and taking things into consideration. But I can't also allow myself to think that I'm, you know, responsible for for every single element, even like so technically, yes, absolutely take that responsibility. No question. But I need an army of people who can enact, I guess, the vision I have for for New South Wales Health. That is, that it's the best employer that any health system can be and that people come to work each day and can fulfil their function in in a happy environment. And I've learned that you've got to be really overt about your desire for you know, that's how you want it to be. You can't leave people working that out for themselves. But yeah, it's it is it, it it is a bit of a burden, but I think I'd, I'd rather feel it than not.
0: How do you manage your work-life balance or your mental health or, you know, those moments where it is pretty tough going? Any advice? Um, look, sometimes I, you know, like everybody else, I don't manage it
1: as well as I'd like to. Um, you know, sometimes I get home, my husband's wanting to, you know, talk to me about whatever, and I'm like, I just can't engage in it. I need to just sort of, I don't know, decompress a little bit, I think. But I think one thing I am good at mostly is that I don't, you know, cart great loads of work home with me or sit at the computer all weekend. I, I get my work done in that, you know, that sort of signing off and administrative type work when I'm in the office. Uh, and so when I'm at home, I obviously take a lot of phone calls and do all that stuff, but I really try to keep home and I love being at home. So, you know, it's, uh, I just love being at home. Um, I'm very fortunate to have, you know, a, a happy life at home, even though my almost 20-year-old daughter is quite scathing about me. Um, <laughs> She gives you a bit of it in the moment. I can't seem to do anything right with that girl at this point in time. Um, but um, hello, Alex. I'm I'm determined to embarrass her at every opportunity. Um, but, um, but, yeah, so, you know, so it, it, it's, it's, I think, whatever it is you invest in, whether it's being at home or something that's that really means something to you, is the only way that I can find to offset what would otherwise, you know, have you in a bit of a state
0: what advice do you have for the Alexes of the world uh, about their future career um, leadership ambitions? Like, what advice do you have about young women who are making their way in the world right now? Um, be nice to your mother. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I knew she was going to get another. <laughs> First of all, because
1: your mother is a good, your mother's a good person. Um, but look, I think I think you know, be brave, um, want more, don't settle. You know, know your own worth. I think that's important. And and have some courage. People look for decisiveness, I think. And one of the things that I think helps women in particular is so long as you're not, you know, being an autocratic maniac and making decisions on the fly, but, you know, if, if people can see you've made a decision that's based on everything that's been put to you and you've asked the question, you've, done, you know, you've gone through that process, but you're still prepared to make a decision and stand by it, that gets you a long way, I feel, and I guess finding that balance, particularly for women, um, you know, having kids. Um, what does that mean for your career? How do you work through that? Can you keep studying? Do you want to? You know, but fundamentally,
0: do what makes you happy and and something you believe in. At fifty-four, Susan Pierce, you have a lot more to give. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't think you are any. Anywhere near done in contributing to this country um, and to the state of New South Wales. Thank you so much for your time today. And if you want to have a chat to Alex, um, she can come and work at FW for a while and we'll, we'll see we'll see if we can we can sort her out for you. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Helen. It's been great. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell. And audio imaging by Nat Marshall.